the Old Testament shows time, seasons, and holidays that they're all God's appointed means of revealing Himself as Creator and Redeemer. And He's bringing all things, just like in the past, He brought all things to the fullness of time when Christ came. He continues working through the seasons, through the appointed times, to bring the consummation of all things with Christ's second coming. So God brought to light the hope of eternal life in the Word. The Word is the Gospel, and the Gospel is what? A person, Jesus Christ. That's Paul's theology here. You can never separate the Old Testament from the Gospel, and the gospel from Jesus Christ. They're all walking together. I want to invite you, please open your Bibles to Titus and remind you that next Lord's Day we have the Lord's Supper. So prepare your hearts during this week to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Titus chapter 1. And we continue our journey through this glorious greeting. So if you can, would you stand and let's read verses 1 through 4 of Titus chapter 1. Here's the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His words through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You may be seated. Think about time. Time, especially when somebody's preaching, time is very precious. You see people looking at the clocks. Time has been something that has intrigued humanity. Humanity has always been intrigued by time. Even the ancient civilizations were able to track time. Uh, of course, by watching the celestial bodies. And I think with time comes seasons. And I think about our Western culture, especially us here in America, we think about seasons primarily as the time of the year when you have a change in the weather. So primarily seasons in our minds are, 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 are climate conditions. Think about days, time, holidays, seasons. And us thinking how different we look at a calendar or uh, seasons and, and holidays how different it was from the people of God under the old covenant contrast our modern calendar with the people under the old covenant calendar it was very different the Old Testament shows time, seasons, and holidays that they're all God's appointed means of revealing Himself as Creator and Redeemer. 
So the seasons under the Old Testament, as you go to the Old Testament, the seasons and the festivals that are very similar, seasons and festivals, they're inseparable. They're all given by God to show them that God is not only the creator, but the redeemer of his people. I like what Michael Lefebvre, he says, he says, Genesis 1.14, where it talks about God placing the moon and the stars and the sun to rule. He says, Genesis 1.14 ascribes the running of this heavenly chronographs, the sun, the moon, the stars, to the hand of God. He put them into the skies and appointed them as signs for days. And we always think about seasons, but the word there could be translated as festivals of Israel. And he says, to follow the celestial calendar was to live on earth in keeping with the cadence of heaven. For ancient Israel, the calendar was in the skies. Far from saying, oh, do you see, so we need to go back to the law and keep the Old Testament feasts. Far from that, the New Testament is very clear that we do not need to go back and keep the, the feasts and the calendar of the Old Testament. No, that's under the Old Covenant. But there is an aspect that's important for us, like the whole Old Testament, there is lessons that we can learn. We don't need to come under the yoke of the Mosaic Law, but we can come and under the teaching and learn from those festivals. And what, as we think about the Old Testament, the seasons and, and the, the festivals and the time, we are to, supposed to be reminded that God is in charge of everything. God is the one in control of everything. He's the one bringing to fulfillment the coming of the salvation that he promised in Genesis 3.15. So as the psalmist says in Psalm 31.15, Psalm 31.15, the psalmist says, I say, you are my God. My times are where? In your hand. And that's the picture. To be reminded that the, the times, the feasts, the seasons, they're all in God's hand. And it's all part of His purpose to reveal Himself, not only as Creator, but as Redeemer. We think about the seasons that we go through, and it's depressing, but summer is coming to an end. It is depressing. Good. Have someone with sympathy here. And as we change seasons, we need to keep in mind that the seasons are God's means to show that He is in control. He is in charge of time. And He's bringing all things, just like in the past, He brought all things to the fullness of time when Christ came. He continues working through the seasons, through the appointed times, to bring the consummation of all things with Christ's second coming. And as we come to Titus chapter 1, verse 3, we see Paul, Paul reminding us of God's sovereignty over time. He is the sovereign one. The watch and the clock are his. Time belongs to him. And we need to be reminded of that. How often we think that we are in charge of time. And we want things on our own timing. And Titus 1.3 is a wonderful, it's a gracious reminder for all of us that time belongs to the Lord. And our duty is to rest on Him. So with that in mind, let's walk through this beautiful text. We, you remember the outline? 
We are walking through the greeter. We are getting to know the greeter. And we saw the greeter in verse 1. Who is the greeter? Who is the author of the letter? Paul. And then we saw not only his name, but we also saw his identity. Paul is what? A slave. He identifies himself as a slave. And then he goes on to not only talk about his identity, but his calling. What God has called him as a slave, he has a different calling. And what is that? To be an apostle. To be an apostle. And now we are developing what he means to be an apostle. What is the purpose of this calling? So that's what we are doing. We're walking through the last part of verse 1 to verse 3. And we saw last Lord's Day, just as a reminder... As Paul moves to the reason or the purpose of his calling, he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says, for, look in your Bibles, for the sake of the faith. He's giving the purpose of his calling. And the purpose of Christ's calling on Paul's life was for him to be an instrument, a vessel in the life of God's chosen people, his elect people. To be an instrument of the faith in the life of God's chosen people. And then Paul, he says something beautiful here. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Remember faith and knowledge of the truth are inseparable. We need the knowledge of the truth that will help us to believe in the truth. Embrace the truth. And that will lead to godliness. And remember last Lord's Day that we saw that godliness is inseparable from eternal life. It's always connected. Our life of godliness now and the future life in the Lord's presence forever. And then he says, in hope, look at verse 2. In hope of eternal life. And then we have this beautiful statement about, about God. Which God who never lies. The unlying God. And I remember Spurgeon talking about the God who never lies. And, and he says, we lie... We lie because we want to gain something from the lies, right? Every time we lie is because we are trying to gain something, escape something. That's why we lie. And then he says, God doesn't need anything. He does not need anything. He has everything. But then he says, Spurgeon says, men are liars oftentimes to win applause, but God needs no honor and no fame, especially from the wicked people. So why would he lie? He can't. You have, you have heard that question before. What, is there anything that God cannot do? What can't God do? Right? And you say, no, God can do all things. Remember, God can never cease to be God. So there is one thing that God cannot do is to cease to be God. And that means that he cannot lie. Because he's God. He's the perfection of truth. And this God who can never lie in eternity past promised eternal life to... It's beautiful because he promised eternal life. Not first of all to the people. But he promised to the Trinity. It's a Trinitarian promise. That God, the Father, would give to the Son a people. That's what John chapter uh, 17 says, John chapter 6. That the Father would give to the Son a people who would be for all eternity serving the Son and loving the Son. 
So Paul talks about this promise, this promise of eternal life, this hope of eternal life. And that's the, the greatest gift that we can have is eternal life. Remember what eternal life is? Remember life, the meaning of life. It's not just breathing. Life in the Bible is what? Dwelling with God. Enjoying His covenantal gracious presence and smile. That's what life is. Remember that from the moment you eat, you will certainly die. And death came by exile, by removing Adam and Eve from God's presence. That's death, being separated from God's presence. So eternal life is for all eternity, enjoying God's favor and grace and mercy and blessing. That's eternal life. And that's what's the engine here that will keep us moving through verse 3. Because let's move to verse 3 now. So Paul says, he's just talking about the promise of eternal life. Think about eternal life. Paul is referring primarily to the future, even though there is a present aspect to the future. But that he promised before the ages began. So we have past, future, and now look at verse 3. We have the present. And at the proper time, verse 3, and at the proper time manifested in his word, what? The hope of eternal life. Through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So what Paul is doing here, he's getting Paul, Titus, the Christians in Crete, and that would apply this church here, all of us. And he's placing us in this epochal, cosmic place in history where there was in, in eternity past God promised eternal life and there is this future of enjoying God but we are now in the present that's where Paul is placing us and there is an aspect that we already have eternal life those who are saved they have eternal life because they know Jesus they love the Lord they know the Father but Paul is speaking about something greater that's about to come but before going there we are in the present Longing for the fulfillment. So Paul says in verse 3, And at the proper time, he manifested. He manifested. This word to manifest was, is often used for bringing to light. As if there was a, Imagine it's dark here and somebody turns on the light. That's the picture here. It's bringing something to light. Something that was in the darkness. And it's bringing to light. And it's often used in the New Testament for Christ's. The appearing of Christ. But instead of Christ, Paul says, and he manifested how? In his word. So the revelation, the bringing to light of the hope of eternal life, now is in the word. In the word. And the word here is a reference to what? What is the word? Jesus, what else? The gospel, the scriptures. I think, let's see how Paul used that sentence. So, for example, and look with me to Ephesians 1.13. Look at that. In him, you also, when you heard the, what? The word of truth, 
And then he explains the word of truth of what? The gospel of your salvation. Or Colossians 1.5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before. Where? In the word of the truth. And then he defines the word of truth as the gospel. Another passage. And that is in 2 Timothy 1.18. Talks about he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through what? Oh, the person of Christ. So you start seeing how Paul, for Paul, the word of God is the gospel. I don't know if you guys ever heard people trying to differentiate between the word of God and the gospel. So some people try to make a distinction between the word of God and the gospel. The whole scriptures are, is the gospel, is the good news. So for Paul, the word is the gospel, and the gospel is inseparable from a person. Who? Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that the hope of eternal life promised before the ages began has now been brought to light, fully disclosure, in the word of the gospel. So you think about the Old Testament, and all the promise of eternal life in the Old Testament was in shadow. Remember, all the darkness of the shadows of the types... And now, all those shadows are brought to light. There is light, and then there is the end of the shadows right there in Christ Jesus. So Paul says in Romans 16, that's a, a wonderful text, very similar to what we are looking here. And you see how Paul frequently used the same doctrine, the same theology to express this hope of eternal life in Christ so Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been the same Greek word, disclosure, brought to light. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. So God brought to light the hope of eternal life in the Word. The Word is the gospel, and the gospel is what? A person, Jesus Christ. That's Paul's theology here. You can never separate the Old Testament from the gospel and the gospel from Jesus Christ. They're all walking together. Amen? And sadly, there are many people who try to cut asunder and, and separate the scriptures from this beautiful unity as if there is no gospel in the Old Testament. And as if Jesus is not there, or if we can, as if we can have the New Testament and not have the Old Testament. We can't. It's, it's one glorious revelation of eternal life in Christ Jesus. So, and Paul says, going back to verse 3 of Titus 1, he says, and at when? The proper time, that's the ESV. If you have the NIV, it says, at his appointed season. And Paul is showing how time belongs to the Lord. I, I, it's interesting because the, the ESV has at the proper time. The, the Greek word there, idios, implies that it belongs to someone, pertaining to someone. That's why I, I, I like the NIV when it says, at his appointed season. At his, belonging to him. So what Paul is saying here that the time belongs to the Lord and he's the one in charge to decide when to act and how to act. 
Paul is reminding all of us that God is working according to His schedule, not yours or mine. We always want God to work according to our schedule, amen? But that's why sometimes we think that God's late. Because we're always using our clocks. We forget that God is the one in charge. Paul says to the Christians in Galatia, he says, And let us not grow weary of doing good. Why? Because sometimes you have been doing good, doing good, and you think, oh, that's my time to be rewarded. I believe it's time for me to be rewarded. And the Lord, the Lord said, no, 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 no. At my time, I reward you. So he says, let us not grow weary of doing good. And it's easy. You get tempted to get weary of doing good. It's true. We, we are tempted to, to grow weary in doing good. I do good and I actually get suffering and persecution and slander. Isn't that tempting for us to... Man, I'm doing good. I have been serving you, Lord. And yet, it's one crisis after another. Then Paul says, for in due season, the same expression there, kairo, idio, kairos, the God's timing, God's season, we will reap if we don't, if you do not give up. It's in God's time, not our time, that we harvest his gracious rewards towards us. Amen. So whenever you think you can demand from God a, a, a timetable, whenever you think that you can put God in your own watch, you are creating an idol. And that's not the God of the Bible. God is sovereign. He's in charge of the time. So we are reminded here that we can never put God in our own schedule. He's the one in charge of the schedule. And also reminds us that the same way that God was preparing and working all things, imagine how many saints under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, were longing and frustrated. When, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Until Christ came. That's why you have Simeon exploding with praises, because now my eyes have seen. And the same thing the Lord is preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's in his own timing. How many people question, when is the Lord coming? When is your Savior coming? When is the second coming? It has been more than 2,000 years. Remember, remember what the Lord says. One day, 1,000 years. So it's his own timing. Amen. And then not only God's timing or God's schedule, but it's God's means. So he says, and at the proper time, at his own time, he manifested in his words through what? Through the preaching. Through the preaching. The proclamation, the kerugma of God's word. Paul says that the preaching, to the Corinthians, they say, he says that the preaching is foolishness. And it is foolishness. That's why sometimes... Uh, unsaved people come to church and you see how bored they are. It's, it's a boring thing. Can you believe that you come and you listen to a man preaching for an hour? Because that's foolishness. 
Well, that's God's means. It's God's means to bring the hope of eternal life. We saw this text. Now let's look again, Romans 16. Look at that. Now to him who is able to do what? Strengthen you. How? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. At the proper time, in his word, through the preaching. That's a beautiful, a beautiful theology that Paul is laying here. The, the hope of eternal life, Jesus Christ, is inserted in God's people through the proclamation of God's word. In Ephesians 2, Paul says the following. He's referring to Jesus Christ. He says, and Jesus came. Look at that. He's talking to people. Where were they? The Ephesians. Where were they? That's not a tricky question. It's a geography question. Where, where were the Ephesians at? In Ephesus. I know, sometimes they're a tricky question, but this is not. That's a, <laughs> it says, and Jesus came to Ephesus. And he preached peace to you. You who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I don't remember reading the Gospels and see Jesus going to Ephesus. He remained in Galilee. He was there, his whole ministry in Jerusalem, the area of Palestine. So when did Jesus go to Ephesus to preach to the Ephesians? Through the preachers, through the apostles. That's how Jesus came. Christ, Jesus Christ, He rides and He conquers through the proclamation of His own word. The proclamation of God's revelation is the Spirit's means of regeneration, sanctification that leads to glorification. That's why Peter, do you remember when Jesus says, John chapter 6, people are scandalized by Jesus' teaching. Many of the disciples leave Him, forsake Him, and Jesus turns to His disciples and are you guys going to go also? Are you going to forsake me also? Do you remember what Peter says? That's what we're singing here. Where else can we go? Why? You have it, words of eternal life. It's the words of Christ that impart eternal life. So brothers and sisters, since eternal life, the greatest blessing of all, that is Jesus Christ himself, if Jesus, who is our eternal life, comes through the preaching, let me ask you, why are so many churches forsaking the preaching of God's Word? Why are so many churches exchanging the preaching for entertainment, music, drama, and other silly things? And why are so many Christian families more concerned about the programs in a church than with the preaching. How many Christians do you know that you have asked, why do you attend this church? And they tell you because of all the programs that that church has. And not because of the exposition of God's word. So Paul says, and at the proper time, at the proper time, 
at his own time. He manifested Christ, the hope of eternal life, in his words through the preaching. And think about your lives. And many of you here, many of you remember, remember the day when Christ came through the preaching and he conquered you. And he brought eternal life to you. That was through the preaching. This week, I, we were having family devotions, and, and I don't remember how it came, but the kids asked how I was saved, and I, I, I remember, I remember exactly 2001. I remember the preacher. I remember he was preaching Genesis 32, there was the story of Jacob. The title of the message was Peniel. And I remember Christ writing through his word and conquering me, literally dragging me to the ground, and I could see eternal life in his presence. And that's what the preaching does. And it's, it's a God's appointed time. Never too late, never too early. It's always on God's timing. And Paul says, and Paul says that he was entrusted. Look at that. And at the proper time manifested in his words through the preaching, with which I have been what? Entrusted. The voice of the verb is passive, implying that who entrusted Paul with this? God. He did not entrust himself. He did not go and took over his apostleship. God gave it to him. And look at what Paul says, with which I have been entrusted by, by the command. And the word here for command is a strong word. Sometimes you see people with their dogs, and they have a voice of command, but that dog does nothing with that voice of command. Right? Oh, Toto, don't do that, Toto. And the dog goes and does the same. The same thing with children. Little Johnny, don't do that. And the little Johnny goes and does that. Because there is no authority. There is no, I would say, a regal decree of power. That's the word here denotes authoritative command, carrying associations of divine and kingly orders. Meaning, when Paul was captured by Christ... The king gave a command, and he could not disobey that. So you remember in Acts chapter 9, when Ananias receives the vision from the Lord, the Lord saying, Ananias, I want you to go and meet Saul. And Ananias says what? No, no, thank you. I know this man. And the Lord tells Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, that is to preach Christ." Before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There is a command. The king is commanding him. And if he disobeys that, he's a rebel. And he will not be a rebel. He loves his king. So that's a powerful command from Christ demanding him to be an apostle. Forsaking all, all his life before and Paul says, with which I have been entrusted. 
And if you know Greek, you know that there is an emphasis here because a lot of times you don't need to put the, 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 personal, the first personal pronoun, I. It carries with the verb. But here Paul is putting the ego, I, I, I have been entrusted. There is an emphasis here in the I. And he does that in many of his letters, but especially in the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and, and, and Titus. So, for example, we see... 1 Timothy 1.11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I, ego, I have been entrusted. Or 1 Timothy 1.15, the saints trustworthy and deserving full of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I, I am the foremost. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 through 7. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Or 2 Timothy 1.11. For which I, ego, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. The emphasis on the I here, I it's not so Paul is boasting about himself. I, can you believe me? No, it's I that he has here that he cannot believe. Paul always remains amazed that he who had been the gospel's main persecutor now has been the gospel's main proclaimer. He stands constantly in amazement that God would save him and call him to preach Christ. That's why he emphasized this I. It's not an I of pride and arrogance. I, I, me. It's an I of, can you believe the I? I who persecuted and hate Christ have been called out to serve him and love him. Paul always remains amazed. And so should we all. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene that he would what? Would love me, give himself for me. How often we sing amazing grace and we are not amazed. So when you speak about yourself, is it to elevate yourself, to boast about yourself, or to show how low and unworthy? You see yourself and the great mercy and grace of God. So, as we see here, uh, verse 3, Paul says, With which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And we know by the letter, it seems that Paul is facing persecution, persecution, especially from false teachers, something that Paul was always facing in different churches. So Paul is making clear through this statement that his apostleship, he's an apostle, not because of his own will, but because what? God, the triune God has called him and made him an apostle. Paul was sovereignly chosen by God to be an apostle. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me ground for no boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me, what? If I do not preach the gospel. 
Why? He has been commanded. He has been captured. He's a slave of God. And there is this royal obligation to serve him. And let me tell you that all those, all those who are called to be pastors, all those who are called to minister the word of God, they also, of course, not like Paul, we are not apostles, but we also have this duty, this obligation to preach the word of God. So these first three verses provide for us, as we are thinking about what's happening in the church in Crete, as Paul is trying to lay the foundation of what's coming as Paul is preparing us for the major theological themes. It's, always, it's also reminding us of the criticism and the persecution that Paul and Titus were facing in Crete. So the first three verses provide for Titus the basis of communicating and carrying out Paul's sometimes forceful demands in his letter. There are some strong things here that Paul is going to tell. He's going to tell the qualifications for elders. That's the type of man you must put. Paul is going to tell what the older women are supposed to do. He's going to tell what the older men are supposed to do. He's going to tell what the younger men and the younger women. So there are strong commands. And they need to know where these commands are coming from. Titus know. Paul is writing these things because he knows that this letter is going to be read to the churches. And we can just imagine the false teachers or some immature Christians in the church asking Titus, who gave you the authority to come here now and start demanding these things from our church? Who gave you? Who appointed you to come here now and be telling us what to do? So it's... This introduction here is like a badge of authority coming from heaven to Crete. To Titus. It's Paul saying, hey, first of all, it's coming from the Lord, passing through me, given to Titus. Therefore, if you disobey Titus, you're disobeying whom? Paul, and you're disobeying the Lord Jesus. So these first three verses here establish the authority that Titus has to be there in those churches and demanding what God demands. And also we see how the apostles, they were not superheroes. They were not celebrities that everybody loved and treasured. Right? Sometimes we think that the apostles, they were respected by all. Loved by all. Honored by all. It's actually the opposite. They were persecuted, despised, questioned over and over again. And if the Lord Jesus was persecuted, despised, rejected... Why would his apostles not be? And why would not all his servants not be persecuted and despised? And we finish verse 3 with the most wonderful sentence of this verse. And he says, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, what? Our Savior. Our Savior. Salvation is a massive topic here in Titus. You can see by how he used this word for salvation, Savior, in verse 3, right here. God our Savior. Look at verse 4 in our Bibles. And Jesus Christ, our what? 
Savior in chapter 2, verse 10. And the doctrine of God, what? Our Savior, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing what? Salvation. Yes. You can move to chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, what? Our Savior appeared, He saved us. And then verse 6, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, what? Our Savior. So that's a, a, a very, very important theme that's resounding through this letter. And it is important for many reasons. First, Paul is taking us back to the Old Testament. And we know that this title, God our Savior, is not a creation of Paul, but he's actually just reciting the text from the Old Testament. So, for example, in 2 Samuel 22, we hear verse 3, My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. Or Psalm 106, 21. They forgot God, who? Their Savior. Or Isaiah 43, verse 3 and 11. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Isaiah 45. 15 and 21, O God of Israel, the Savior, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. Or Luke, as come towards the end of the Old Covenant, Luke 147, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So Paul is not creating this title, he's just drawing from the well of the Old Testament. And it's actually, not only from the Old Testament, but it's a very specific situation in the Old Testament when God reveals himself as the Savior. And what situation was that? What season was that? What occasion was that? The Exodus. That's when God reveals himself as the Savior. So, for example, we see in Exodus 14... Exodus 14.30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Or, this is a beautiful text, Deuteronomy 33.29, that we apply to us now. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people, what? Saved by the Lord. So when Paul now referring to Titus, and not only Titus, a Gentile, but to all the Christians in Crete, and he says, God our Savior, he's placing Paul a Jew, Titus a Gentile, those Greeks, all in the story, in the drum of God, going back all the way to the Old Testament. What God did in, in shadows and types, now he has accomplished in the person of Christ, and we are the objects of his salvation. And there is also another aspect that's important, especially we see in this letter, is because Caesar in the Roman Empire, Caesar was known as the Soter, the Savior. Caesar was called the Savior. People were commanded to hail Caesar as the Savior. So Paul is reminding us that Caesar is not the Savior, but God is our Savior. 
And we dare not be looking for salvation in Caesar. Like sadly, so many people look for salvation in politicians. Think that presidents and kings will save us. Not only Caesar was called the savior, but Zeus. Do you remember Zeus, the main Greek god in Crete? He was well known as the Soter, the savior. And Paul is saying Zeus is no savior. God, the triune God, is the Savior. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful news because He does not come as our enemy. He does not come as our judge to condemn us, but He comes as a Savior with His arms wide open to rescue us. So to wrap up here, to finish this, verse 3, Lord's willing, we finish next Lord's Day with verse 4. But verse 3 I know you guys were asking, you guys kept saying, I can't wait for us to go back to the exposition, verse by verse, book by book. So here we are, verse by verse, literally. <laughs> so as we come towards the end of this first three verses, just for the first three verses, there is a massive, a massive theology for us to just chew and eat and devour for many, many ages. And we see, I just want to remind you, look at verses 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords or leads to godliness in hope of eternal life. Eternal life referring primarily to the future which God who never lies promised when? When? Before the ages began, past. We have future, eternal life. We have past, when God promised that. And then we have the present. And at His own appointed season, He brought you life through the preaching of His Word. I said, I, I like, I kind of like the NIV at His own season, at His season, at His appointed season. Because it takes me back to Genesis 1.14. As I was reading this verse and thinking about even the Greek translation of Genesis 1.14, where he used the word kairos there. Genesis 1.14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for what? We always say seasons. A better translation would be the festivals. They appointed the specific times that the Lord has appointed for His people. What Moses is saying here is that the heavenly bodies are not gods. We are not supposed to worship them, but they are servants of the true God to appoint these specific seasons in God's calendar of salvation. God has set up the seasons in order to reveal Himself as Creator and Redeemer. So in Acts chapter 14, you can turn there, Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Look at verse 17. 
Paul says that God did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful what? Seasons, kairos. Satisfying our hearts with food and gladness. The seasons testify to the existence and goodness of God. Paul is talking about God as creator, but he does not want to reveal himself just as creator. He receives more glory by revealing himself as what? Redeemer. So the seasons not only reveal God as the creator, the goodness of the creator, but as the God, the redeemer who saves his people. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. At the appointed season, each season is an unfolding of a divine plan, ordered from the beginning to the end. So you think about the different seasons in the Old Testament where God was just present, act, saving His people. So you think about seasons of saviors under the Savior. So you think about Noah. You think about Joseph. You think about Moses. You think about Joshua. You think about the judges. You think about Boaz. You think about David. Think about Jehoshaphat, Josiah. And even through the carnality of Esther and Mordecai, God is the Savior in these different seasons. This different kairos. Until you come to Mark chapter 1, and there we hear the, that beautiful sentence, Mark 1.15. The kairos is fulfilled. The season is here. The season of salvation is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in the gospel. So what Paul is telling us, and that's so important for us to be mindful that the seasons, the time belongs to God. And He's working all things for the glory of His name. In the redemption of His people. So as seasons change, remember, as, Jesus, as seasons pass, remember that it's God working out. Just like He was working out in the past, He's working out in the present to bring about our eternity in his presence. Not only that, but look at how theocentric these first three verses are. What is theocentric? God-centered, right? Theo, theos. Look at how God-centered these first three verses are. It's beautiful. God is all in all. God is Paul's owner, a slave of God. God elected his people. God who never lies. God promised eternal life. God manifested God's word, God's timing, God's means. God entrusted the calling to Paul. And the most beautiful part, God our Savior. There is nothing more precious, nothing more precious than to have God as our Savior. God reveals himself to humanity as the creator. People have no excuse God has revealed himself as the creator to everybody. But to his chosen people, he reveals himself as what? Savior. Savior. Our Savior. Joining our voices with all the people who have become objects of God's mercy. Saved from his wrath to belong to him and enjoy him forever. So Isaiah says, Behold, 
the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. Or Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no uh, Savior. And I pray that we, together with Paul, we would stand amazed that God would save us. We would be humbled and in awe that God would have compassion, that he would love the unlovable like us, and that his arms are not ready to strike us, but to embrace us and to save us and to tend for us, just like Isaiah 40, as lambs in his chest and in his arms. Amen. And that's in Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Indeed, your word is wonderful, very precious, more precious than silver, more costly than gold. Thank you for speaking to us. And I pray, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in us, that all the things that we heard here would be lived out, that we would be doers of your word, that we would leave this place in humility, treasuring in you, loving you, longing to share the good news of Christ with the lost. Help us, Lord. People are lost. People have no hope. They're dead. And we have a God who delights in saving these people. Just like he saved us. So please help us. Help us to proclaim this good news. The same way that you entrusted Paul with the gospel. You have also entrusted your church. And all of us here have a responsibility to, to proclaim your good news, Lord. So help us. Help us to be faithful servants for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.